0: We are in the middle of a series that we've been in for the last few weeks from the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, invite you to go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. We're calling this series The Disciple's Journey. As we enter into 2018, one of our goals is for all of us to walk closer with Jesus. That is a goal. And that's probably not a surprising goal for somebody who's coming to church. You think, well, what, what else would your goal be? But what we have discovered is that unless we're intentional about that, we won't do it unless we're on. Unless we're purposeful, we will end up at the end of 2018 no closer to Jesus than we were at the beginning of 2018. And so we're trying to put some very intentional uh, paths out for how we can walk closer to Jesus we've got a definition that we've been working on for a disciple and it goes like this a disciple is a person in the process meaning that it 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 takes time it's something you engage in on a daily basis in the process of learning the teachings of Jesus learning the teachings of Jesus in the scriptures and following his example in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit And what that basically means is it's not enough to just learn about the teachings of Jesus, but it's actually a process of putting those teachings into practice in our everyday lives, the way we interact with our family, the way we interact at work, the way we use social media. Ouch. Right, I mean, so, so I mean, it's not just, there's no area of our life that you can say, okay, that part is shielded. I don't have to act like Jesus when I'm doing this. It's every part of our life. It's a process of learning how to take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to our lives. And as we go through the first part of the book of Acts, we are looking at five habits of a disciple. So the first habit we looked at, and if you're a note taker, you can look at the back of your bulletin and fill some of this in along the way if that's something that's helpful to you. We, we looked at the very first habit was disciples wait on God meaning that we have to learn how to be patient. We have to learn how to wait on God, not become distracted with all the things of the world and not paying attention, also not rush ahead of God and try to make something happen, but be content to wait on God. Disciples wait on God. The second habit we looked at last week was that disciples grow in community. This is not a journey that we take by ourselves. This is a journey that we take together, that you make me a better disciple the person to your left and right, hopefully they're making you a better disciple. As we live together in community, as we challenge one one another, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And so what we want to recognize is that it is in community that we are becoming more like Jesus. Think about it this way. We can study and learn the idea that Jesus taught us we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But if we're not actually living in community with our neighbor we never really have to put that into practice, do we? I mean, if, 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 if we're never engaged with somebody, if they never have the opportunity to annoy me, if they never have the opportunity to, to make me mad, then I don't have to really learn what it means to turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. And so we live in community, and in community, we learn how to put the things that Jesus taught us into practice. It's what the early disciples did. And so today, what I wanna look at is habit number three. Habit number three is that disciples pray with boldness. Disciples pray with boldness, I think there are two things that set the early church apart from church today in America. The first is their emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. When you read about the early disciples, the early Christians, when you read the sermons of Peter and when you read the teachings of Paul, they were enamored with the idea that Jesus was dead and God raised him from the dead. It was really the only set thing they talked about. Think about this, they didn't have great cathedrals to do programs in, they didn't have influence, they didn't have money, they didn't have high profile preachers, they didn't have reputable people who were influencing in the government in government circles, they didn't have any of those things. But what they did have was they had, they had an experience where they were eyewitnesses of something that happened. They had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, they had seen him and knew that he had been crucified, and then they had seen him resurrected and they talked about it all the time. They didn't talk about anything else. And, and that was one of those unique characteristics of the early church that set them apart from us. Because here's what we talk about today in the church. We talk about politics, right? I mean, we, we, we like to talk about all kinds of other things. We, we like to talk about social issues. We, we, we want to talk about all these minute distinctions of theology that sometimes become distractions and divide the church from itself. I'm not saying those things, are, politics are important, theologies, all those things are important, but it's important to recognize for us that the early church, they had one song and they sang it over and over again, and that is that Jesus is alive. Once you can understand that, everything else falls into place. And so they focused on the resurrection of Jesus. The second thing that sets the early church apart from the church today is how they prayed. That they prayed in a very different way than we tend to pray today. In fact, it was their prayers that actually set them apart from us, I believe, in pretty significant ways. And it's what I want to look at today. Because I believe that the prayers that a church pray reveal the kind of church the church is becoming. The prayers that we pray together give a window into what kind of a church that we are. And so the prayers of this early church give us a picture of what kind of church they are. You know, at Southside, um, we we want prayer to be the central piece of everything that we do. Uh, We want to become a church of believers who are increasingly dependent on prayer. I believe that the character of our praying will determine the character of our ministry. I believe the character of your praying will determine the character of your life. I know that the character of my praying shapes the character of my preaching. And, and that would be true for you if you're a teacher in the public school system or if you're, if you're somebody who works in an office. The character of your prayer, it shapes who you are. We sang the Lord's Prayer earlier. Jesus gave us a template for how to pray. And that template actually is more than just something that we repeat by rote, but it's a pattern for prayer and it's a pattern for living and so what I want to challenge you with today is this idea that your prayer life has a significant part to play in your journey to become a disciple. And I want to see how the early church did that. For us at Southside, one of the things that we try to do is, is, is we, we don't want prayer to be um, the way that we move people on and off the stage. It's not a transition technique in worship. We, we don't want prayer to be a perfunctory uh, exercise as we start an event or as we close an event we recognize that the power of everything we do comes from God through the Holy Spirit as we engage with him in prayer we want it to be central on Wednesday nights if you haven't been joining us uh, our midweek worship service we're actually doing a series right now on the Lord's Prayer if you want to learn more about prayer you can join us on Wednesday nights at six thirty in our midweek worship service as we take that Lord's Prayer apart Phrase by phrase. So this morning I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. If you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 3 and 4. Uh, there's Bibles in front of you. We'll also put these uh, verses on the screen as we look at how the early church prayed. Now, we're not going to go through Acts chapter 3 together but if you're following along in our reading plan that we are printing for you on the back of the bulletin, you will read Acts chapter 3 this week. So let me just summarize it for you, and then you will hopefully engage with God's word this week. So after the experience in the upper room, remember the disciples were told by Jesus to go to the upper room and wait. Disciples wait on God, so the disciples went to the upper room, they waited on God. The Holy Spirit came And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were miraculously able to preach the message of the gospel in all these languages of people who had come from all these different parts of the world. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people got saved that day. Peter Peter preached that first inaugural sermon of the church, and 3,000 people put their faith and trust in in Jesus on that day. So after that experience was over, uh, Peter and John left the upper room, and they were headed to the temple and as they were on their way to the temple, they passed by a lame beggar who was well known to everybody because this was his spot. I know some of you may drive around our city and uh, you may encounter some homeless people and they are pretty much, many of them pick the same place and it's where they work all the time. This is very similar. This this lame beggar was at this one place and everybody knew him. Everybody recognized him. He was in this same place. So, so, this man is begging and, and Peter and John basically say, hey, we don't have any money to give you, but we have something better in the name of Jesus be healed. And the guy gets up and, and he's healed. Well, uh, clearly this was pretty spectacular. So they drew a huge crowd right there in the outer courts of the temple, on the porch of the temple. All these people began to gather around. Well, Peter had just preached a sermon in the upper room. He had it ready. He's like, well, I might as well preach it again. So he preached the same sermon again and it had three basic points. God sent Jesus to save you, you killed him, now say you're sorry. That's the, that's the message. And so he preached that message to all these people, these people were amazed at what was going on and, and so people all right there in the temple courts are coming to faith in Jesus. Look with me in chapter 4 at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So every the 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 preacher inside the temple all the staff inside the church it's like where is everybody it's time to start church I feel that way sometimes at 11 as y'all are coming in hey where is are we gonna have enough people have church today they're all waiting outside but the reason they're not coming in is because God is doing something not inside the church he's doing something out in front of the church and people are attracted to the activity of God have you ever noticed that When God does something, it attracts people. It doesn't matter what they believe or don't believe. When God is clearly moving, it attracts people. So the people inside, the Pharisees, the high priests are saying, where is everybody? They came upon them greatly annoyed. (laughs) Of course they were annoyed. They expected all those people to be inside listening to them. Instead, they're outside listening to Peter and John. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now remember, these are the same people who had Jesus arrested and crucified, They tried to kill him and he wouldn't stay dead. They're already very frustrated. And now all his disciples are going around telling everybody that Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse three. And they arrested them, Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. I mean, the movement of the gospel is an unstoppable force. I mean, the religious leaders couldn't stop it. The political leaders couldn't stop it. The power of Rome couldn't stop it. I mean, this is a tidal wave washing over the city of Jerusalem. In fact, some historians believe that, that at this point, with that many people coming to faith in Jesus, believing in the resurrection, it was approximately 10% of the entire population of Jerusalem that now were believing. Isn't that incredible? 10%. Because they were hearing the testimony of these people who witnessed the resurrection and they were seeing evidence of the power of it. So the next day, these same leaders uh, that framed Jesus brought Peter and John in for questioning. And this is what they asked in verse seven, Acts 4, verse seven. The question is, by what power or by what name did you do this? Notice they are not disputing, they're not arguing about the miracle that took place. It is undeniable. The priests themselves had walked by this lame beggar many times, and now this lame beggar is up walking around. So they're not asking, they're not asking, how did you do it they're basically saying by what power or by what authority did you do it they're not questioning the miracle itself then peter filled with the what holy spirit. holy spirit remember what jesus said you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and then you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and the ends of the earth this is why disciples wait on god that's why that's the first habit of discipleship because when we try to do something in our own power we will fail But if we wait on the power of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can stop us. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by by him this man is standing before you." I mean, can you hear the boldness? Just remember, just remind you who Peter is and and what has happened to him over the last few weeks and months. Uh, Peter was the disciple who stepped out on the water and got overwhelmed by the waves and the wind and sank. And Jesus had to reach down and grab him by the hand to pull him up and say, "Why, why do you doubt Peter's the one who told Jesus when Jesus said, "Hey, I'm going to be taken away and crucified." Peter said, "No, no, no, that's not going to happen." Peter's the one that Jesus said, "Well, get behind me, Satan." Jesus called him Satan. Peter's the one who went out into the into the pre, the courtyard of the high priest and denied Jesus three times just like Jesus said he would. Peter's the one who was hiding while Jesus was dying on the cross. Now, for those of you who are here today, and maybe you you don't know what you believe about Christianity, you're not sure about all this, let me just give you a piece of evidence about why so many of us are convinced at the message of the gospel and the truth of the physical resurrection of Jesus, because people only change like Peter changed if they saw something. See, Peter saw something, he experienced something, and it changed him. He was no longer a coward hiding or denying that he knew Jesus. What was different between the temple court or the priest court, the high priest courtyard, just a few weeks before, and him standing in front of the temple and standing in front of the same high priest who had Jesus arrested and crucified and saying, you want to know how I did this? I'll tell you how I did this. I did it in the name of Jesus, who, by the way, you crucified and God raised from the dead. I mean, he is up in the high priest's face. There's only one explanation for that kind of change. Peter saw something. And what he saw, what he experienced was the resurrection of Jesus. And when you encounter the resurrected Jesus, it has the power to transform everything about your life. It's one of the reasons why the church today would do well to get back to the habits of the church of the first century and focus on the resurrection as the central piece of Christianity. All these other issues, as important as they might be, they all pale in comparison to the central truth of the Christian teaching, which is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, sent, crucified, dead, and buried, and raised from the dead. That is the central piece of Christianity. And if you're here today, And one of the reasons that you're hesitant to believe Christianity, one of the reasons you're standing back, is because you just can't believe in a literal six-day creation. Or you have a problem with the fact that so many evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Or whatever your issue is, can I just tell you you're being distracted? Those issues, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of of what you believe about creation or science and faith. All those things are, are important. But all of those things fall in proper perspective when we understand that Jesus was raised from the dead. That is the central claim of the Christian faith. And so Peter was out there. He proclaimed it. And then in verse 11, he says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has been, become the cornerstone. And there is salvation. Listen to this. There is salvation In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me just make this simple for you: all the sacrifices, all the religious rituals, all the festivals, all that has its place, has its purpose. But it was all pointing to this one truth, and that is the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was who lived, died, and was raised from the dead. That is the central piece of all of the message of the Scriptures. Verse thirteen. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that verse. Because here are these highly educated priests, Sadducees and Pharisees, are scratching their head thinking, these guys are just common fishermen. There's nothing spectacular about them. I mean, they're kind of backwood hicks. They don't know anything. They don't have the education we have. What could explain this? And they already knew how to explain it. These men had been with Jesus. See, even even those who had Jesus arrested and crucified recognized that the people who were with Jesus had been changed and transformed. Something had happened. These guys were no longer the same as they had been. So the religious leaders were in a very difficult spot. The lame man was standing there. Everybody could see him. The crowds were all amazed. So they couldn't deny the miracle. So they warned Peter and John. They said, do not speak in the name of Jesus again. Listen, if you're going to go around and do miracles, okay, all right. But just don't give credit to Jesus. Don't say that name anymore. Don't talk about him. But Peter said, we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. But the high priest couldn't punish Peter and John because they were standing among this entire crowd who had just seen the power of the Holy Spirit through Peter and John raise this lame man to be able to walk again. So verse 23, when they were released, Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, now right here, this is where I wanna stop for just a minute. So Peter and John get back to the rest of of the group all the other disciples, all the folks who are gathered, they go back and they tell this incredible story. And as a result of this, the fact that Peter and John are now in trouble with the high priest, they're in trouble with the same people who just had Jesus crucified, the fact that the whole town is in an uproar, they're they're coming back into their little group of other believers and they're gonna pray. And I want you just to stop for just a second and I want you to put us in that situation and say, how would we pray if that were us? What would we pray for? Well, I can answer this because when we gather to pray, we usually pray for this. We pray for pr- protection. Like, Lord, protect us from, from these bad guys. Like, you, you know who they are, Lord. I mean, we might even pray, you know, smite them down, almighty smiter, right? I mean, so, so we might pray, Lord, you know, take, take revenge on your enemies, you know, bind Satan from us. Do not let them hurt us. Allow, you know, protect us. Watch over us. Keep us safe, Lord. You, you know, it, we're the only people who are the, the sole witnesses and carriers of the message of the gospel, Lord. Don't let any of us be arrested or thrown in prison. Don't let any of us be sacrificed or killed. I mean, we're, we're, you know, there are only 12 apostles left and we've got a whole world to change. God, would you just... Build a hedge of protection around us. We like that one too. If you're not in church one, that's a good church line, right? Build a hedge of protection around us. And we're praying for protection. We're praying for safety. We're praying for wellness. Now listen to how the early church prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, they are actually praying scripture, which is a good habit to get in, by the way. If you've ever been like me and you don't know what to pray, you don't know how to put it in words, you've got an entire Bible, especially the book of Psalms, full of prayers. It's a great way to learn how to pray. But they're quoting Psalm chapter 2. They're praying Psalm 2 back. To God, but instead of applying it to the enemies of Israel, which Psalm chapter 2 does, they're applying it to the religious leaders, the, the Hebrew leaders themselves. Verse 27, the prayer continues For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, to do whatever your hand. And your plan had predestined to take place. So what would we have done? Now now they're building up this prayer. What are we about to ask for? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what's that last word? Boldness. Notice what they didn't pray for they did not ask for protection, they did not ask for safety, they did not ask for security. They did not ask that the plans of their enemies be foiled. In fact, they recognized that the plans of the enemies were actually plans that God had given them for his ultimate glory. They recognized that God had orchestrated all of this. And they were praying, God, continue to do whatever you're gonna do in them. If you've set them on this path, To seek to persecute us, so be it, Lord. Just give us boldness to continue to speak the name of Jesus in face of all the persecution that may come. But they do not ask for safety. They do not ask for security. They do not ask for comfort. So I want to look at three elements of the disciples' prayer. Three things that I think really set this prayer apart and that I think will have the the power in our prayer lives to help us as we're on this disciples' journey and also to help our church as we seek to be the kind of church That demonstrates to a watching world the power of the Holy Spirit at work. That people might look at us and say, there's no explanation for that. They're just common, ordinary people. The only thing that we can figure is different about them is they've been with Jesus. So three things that I think this prayer included. First of all, three elements of a disciple's prayer. First of all, an acknowledgement that God is in control. This is critical to have an effective prayer life an acknowledgement that there is nothing that happens that is outside God's knowledge and outside God's control. Listen to what they said in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Lord, you put all this together. In verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let me ask you, when you approach God, do you approach him in in prayer in an attitude that declares that we know what's best that you know what's ultimately best and you're trying to get him to cooperate with your plans or do you approach God in prayer recognizing that he already has a plan and he is executing it and prayer and pray to him instead to say Lord adjust my heart tune my heart to your plan that's a hard prayer to pray I mean, it's easy for me to say that today. And, and if I had experienced some of the things you've experienced or gone through, through some of the hardships you've gone through, maybe I'd feel differently about it. But when you're walking with a loved one and they're battling a disease that's going to take their life, it is, it is every, it would, it's only natural that we would pray, Lord, would you spare their life? But do we recognize that maybe that's not God's ultimate plan? And do we recognize that eternity is so much longer than just the temporary life that we may live 80, 90 years? And that his plan exceeds our plan, his ways are higher than our ways, that we can't fully understand or comprehend anything because our perspective is so limited, but his perspective is unlimited, that one of the, one of the ways we need to pray is an acknowledgement that God is in control. And so the nations may rage against us, the enemies may be pouring against us, your adversaries may be pressing in and you feel like the walls are closing in on you, but you have to recognize, God, this situation, this circumstance is not outside of God's control. And a God who is all-knowing knows what's best, and a God who is all-loving will only put me in a situation that will ultimately be for my eternal good, even if it is causing me temporary hardship and pain. Do you pray with an acknowledgement that God is in control? This is why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But how do we pray? We pray instead, Lord, here's my will. Would you make it so? Lord, here's my kingdom. Would you make that kingdom a reality? And Jesus' Jesus' invitation for us is to surrender to God's plan, surrender to God's will, and recognize that it is ultimately what is best for us. So we acknowledge that God is in control. The second thing I think that this prayer teaches us, the second element is a request for boldness. Look what they said in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak with your word with all boldness. One of the reasons um, I'm convinced that the disciples could pray this way um, was because they remembered what Jesus said. Jesus had told them, he said, listen, um, you need to be aware that if they, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you because you're not of this world. If you were of the world, they would love you. But you're not of this world because I've called you out of this world. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. So get ready. Get ready. I don't know if the disciples actually heard him when he said that, but I think by the time we read in Acts chapter 4, I think they were fully aware of what he meant. And and, and that is this. If we're going to face these kind of challenges, these kind of obstacles, we have to pray for boldness. If we recognize that it's coming from God's hand, we pray for God's grace and mercy and his boldness to face the circumstance that he's bringing our way. Former pastor at Southside uh, used to say all the time, and he had it written, on a on a on a picture in his office, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And so do you believe that the will of God, ultimately what is best, that that with that will, comes God's grace, comes God's power, comes God's mercy to endure whatever it is that he may bring in you. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you've just recently gotten some sort of diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you're family, a loved one. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've got a child who's in a lot of trouble and you don't see a light at the end of the tub- tunnel. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. I don't know what it is, but you have to understand and recognize, okay, if God is ultimately in control and he is, then Lord, give me the resources that only you can provide for me to face the challenges that are, that are upon me. Give me boldness. Give me the strength to face. And the third part of the prayer is a plea for, God, for a plea for God-sized evidence. Look what they said in verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They were not afraid to pray and ask for signs and wonders. Lord, would you just continue to do great things, things that nobody can explain? Look, what, look with me over in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5 of Acts, verse 12, look what happened. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people of the ha- by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, they, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Do you know what was happening? Word was getting out that amazing things were happening. And people were flooding in. And the priests, the high priest couldn't stop it because this was not the activity of some common, ordinary fisherman. This was the activity of the Holy Spirit through weak, unintelligent, uneducated men. And there were, the only explanation for it is God is up to something. I just wonder if we pray for God-sized activity and events in our life. Do we pray as a church for God-sized activities in our church that can be explained no other way than that the hand of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us? It says the world is desperate to see God sized activities. The world is hungry. And suddenly, when they see things that can only be explained through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly all the other arguments begin to fall away. All the other, all the other distractions begin to fade in the background. But look what these early disciples did they prayed intentionally for God to move in power. They, they they didn't pray for safety security health and wellness instead they took all of that prayer energy and they poured it into God make us bold help us to accept your will whatever it is and Lord by the power of your Holy Spirit move in mighty ways that the only explanation could be that God is at work I, I don't I don't know about you I, I want to be a part of something like that don't you I mean, I want to be a part of something that can only be explained because the power of God through his Holy Spirit shows up. And I believe that God wants to move in his church and in the lives of believers in such a way that that people might see and know the glory of God. Jesus taught us, he said to us, he said, listen, let your light shine so that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I believe that God wants to be glorified Through his church. But I recognize that that's going to require for me and for you and for all of us to follow closely enough with Jesus on this journey to discipleship and to be in prayer and what we pray for and how we pray matters. Because if we continue to pray for safety and protection and security, we may feel safe and cozy inside of a nice temperature controlled sanctuary, but I'm not sure the world's impressed by our buildings. In our nice facilities. What they're desperate for is to see a movement of God in the people of God. Will you pray with me? Um, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to encourage you for, for just a minute to think about what practical steps you can take to engage with God in a prayer life that is more reflective of that first church than of our standard prayers today. Maybe it would just be this week you would just pray just these few verses from Acts chapter four. Just mark them down and pray them. Make it your prayer over and over again this week. I don't don't know what it would be for you. But would you this week seek to engage, engage with God in prayer in a different way? Would you seek to acknowledge his sovereignty and his control over all the circumstances of your life? Would you, would you seek to pray in such a way that, that you would ask him to prepare you for whatever those circumstances are? Would you pray in such a way that, that, you might, that you might ask him to move in mighty power? Maybe for you it's just putting yourself in environments where you can learn to pray, where you can practice prayer. Father, we come to you today and we're grateful to you for your love and your mercy and your grace in our lives. Father, we are so bent towards praying for our own security and safety that we often forget that it it was through hardships and challenges that that early church was able to stand out from the rest of the world in such a way that you might be glorified. Lord, help us to with boldness approach you with just surrender to your will, that we might be submitted to whatever plans you have for us and to live with expectation that the power of your Holy Spirit might move in us, that you would be the only one to receive the glory. There would be no other explanation than the movement of your hand in and among your people. Father, for those who are here today who may be struggling with just the idea of the message of the gospel and they're they're longing, they're looking for some evidence, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them and draw them to yourself. Father, for those of us who our faith has grown cold and stagnant, Lord, would you help us to hear your invitation to draw near to you as you draw near to us, to find the time to make the time to seek you in prayer and to seek you in Bible reading, and that we might be transformed to the image of your son, Jesus, that the world might might recognize and see him in your church and that you might be glorified. Father, as we take up these tithes and offerings, we pray, Lord, that you would take them and use them, that your kingdom would spread around the world, that, Father, um, that you might be glorified through the generosity of your church and the activity of your church in every corner of the planet.